In the market for investment-worthy bags, watches, and fine jewelry, Rebag is the answer. Rebag is a luxury resale platform where each piece is carefully inspected by experts to ensure quality and authenticity. Use Rebag to buy and sell finds from the world's top brands, including Louis Vuitton, Chanel, and Cartier. Head to Rebag.com and get up to 15% off your first purchase as a member with code REBAGNEW. Shop today at Rebag.com. That's R-E-B-A-G.com. And use promo code REBAGNEW for up to 15% off your first purchase as a member. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, bit to get 30, bit to get 20, 20, 20, bit to get 20, 20, bit to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. And welcome to Culture Lab. I'm Christy Taylor. This is the show all about how science plays out in our cultural creations. Sometimes we talk about the science behind popular TV and movies. Other times we talk to artists and authors about the research that influenced their works. Today, though, I hope you're coming hungry because this is all about the most delicious culture, food. You may have watched the Apple TV series Lessons in Chemistry, about a frustrated 1950s-era scientist named Elizabeth Zott. She's trying to teach women about chemistry through cooking. Well, real-life Harvard food scientist Pia Sorensen does something similar. She teaches students about chemistry, physics, and biological principles with help from world-class chefs. And editor Sam Wong recently sat down with her to chat about everything from the perfect cheese sauce to curing fish. Enjoy, but, you know, maybe have a snack candy. I've been writing about the science of cooking for a few years now, and I find it such a rewarding thing to learn about because the more you understand that, the more that you can make yourself delicious food. So in your course, you have these famous chefs who come and they do guest lectures. One of the people who started it was Farhan Adria from uh, El Bulli, is that right? Mm-hmm. Are there some of those chefs who are doing really impressive things with scientific principles and bringing them into the kitchen to do new things? Yes. And and actually, one of our kind of ideas is that it really doesn't matter if you are a world famous cutting edge chef, or if you're just cooking and kind of tinkering in your kitchen. Anytime that you're kind of manipulating a recipe, you are doing science, you're playing with science, and really, you're sort of an experimental scientist in your kitchen. The idea with the course, and those of you in the audience who have taken it know this, they know that these chefs such as Ferran Adria, the Roca brothers, many others will come and they will talk about how they think about food and show the kinds of recipes and creations they have designed. Many of these chefs, and it kind of started with started with Ferran, use scientific principles to really push what's possible in the kitchen. There are all kinds of examples. Those of you who are familiar with the molecular gastronomy movement know that it kind of rests on these principles. If you've heard of things like uh, spherification, which is this gel-encased, delicious liquid food, then you, you know about some of those foods. But they show up everywhere, and they show up when you bake cookies. Are there tasks that you set the students to do at home where they can create some amazing things by using you know, scientific ideas in the kitchen? 
Yeah. So one of our, what I would say is one of our more popular labs, and you can do them at home, but also in the students in our in our class on campus. Once a week, they go into a laboratory. It's a sort of a food food and science laboratory. It has cooking equipment, but it also has a lot of very strange sciencey equipment. And they cook things, and then they take measurements, and then the highlight is that at the end you eat your lab. So <laughs> one of the only science science labs where you can eat your lab. So one of the most popular ones, I think, is our molten chocolate lab or lava cake lab, which entirely rests on the fact that when you cook a cake of that kind, you want to really control the transfer of heat into the cake so that the center remains molten. So that when you take a spoonful, the kind of sauce flows out of it. And it's this mix of delicious crumb, but also delicious chocolatey sauce. And that entire recipe builds on how quickly does heat diffuse in food. And since food is mostly water, you can basically use recipes like that to calculate or sort of estimate how quickly heat diffuses. And then you can compare that. You can go into the literature, you can uh, look up this number, which was very carefully measured and estimated by scientists, and you can compare and you can actually come pretty close just by taking measurements on, on, on a cake. In Lessons in Chemistry, the, the book and the TV show, it's about this chemist, Elizabeth Zott, who, uh, who uses a cooking show on TV to educate people about science and also to kind of show people in, in the 1950s that women can be scientists. Did you relate to her when you read the book? <laughs> Maybe a little bit. I mean, I wish. <laughs> Certainly, actually, the person who recommended it to me was my mom. So she must have made some connection. And in the TV show, Elizabeth mentions a few science kind of tricks that she uses in her cooking. I wonder if you can explain how they work. So one of them is um, she talks about using sodium citrate to make a smooth and stable cheese sauce. What's happening there? So for something like this, often when I think about it with my students, I think of it in terms of, well, what would make the perfect sauce? And a perfect sauce is basically a fluid which has the perfect viscosity. So it clings to the food so you get some of the delicious flavor. It's not so thick that it's basically too pasty or solid, but it's also not so thin that it just kind of sits in the bottom of your bowl. So with when you make a cheese sauce, you want your sauce to be perfectly fluid and molten and, and homogeneous. And it's hard to do that because when you melt many cheeses, many cheeses melt perfectly, but often they kind of separate a little bit into its fat component and its water component. And so one trick is to use sodium citrate, which is it's basically an acid. Citrate is the same acidic molecule that's in lemons. So if you think about what a cheese sauce is, it's basically fat from the cheese. There's also water in cheese, as in most foods, a big portion is water. And then there is the protein structure, which in the case of cheese is casein, which some of you may have heard of. And this casein is kind of perfectly structured and kind of holds together. It's held together by calcium ions, which are positively charged. And so then what happens when you add something like sodium citrate, which is an acid, and the defining features of acids is that they 
release positively charged ions. And so what they do, these positively charged hydrogen ions, is they basically displace the positively charged calcium ions. And so what it does is basically it's kind of disrupts this casein, this protein structure, and releases some of the proteins from it. And then the amazing thing that happens is that, so proteins, this is now going back to biology class, proteins is made of amino acids, right? It's long strings of amino acids. They have parts that kind of like water. They have parts that don't like water. And so what they're able to do is that when you whisk the cheese sauce and you're basically incorporating bubbles of the fat in the cheese into the water, and this is basically making an emulsion, similar to a salad dressing, which you would just have an oil part and a sort of vinegary water part. You would shake it really hard and then they would mix together and they would combine. And so you do the same thing with the cheese. You basically mix it very hard and that mixes the oily part and the water part together. And then what that protein does is, since it has both a water-loving part to it and a oil-loving part to it, dispersed throughout this long protein chain, it basically sits at the interface of the fat in the cheese and the water in the cheese and kind of stabilizes that interface. Is sort of able to bridge these two faces and hold them together. And so because of that, you get a more flowy, more flowy mm. sauce. In a salad dressing, when you put something like mustard in, mustard can kind of act as an emulsifier and it helps the fat and the water to stay yes. together. Is it basically yes. doing the same thing? Yes, exactly. It's exactly like a salad dressing where the mustard kind of also sits at the interface of the oil and the water, or it's like a mayonnaise where you might add some egg yolk and that also has the effect of sort of sitting at the interface and making it more stable. So anytime you have an emulsion, anytime you're mixing oil and water, really, really don't want to mix. But anytime you want to mix them in a sauce or in any kind of cooking context, it really helps to have a surfactant of some kind that kind of bridges that. And the proteins in the cheese can basically act as surfactants. Another thing that they mention on the show is using baking powder on chicken skin when you roast a chicken, which is supposed to make the skin more crispy. Yeah. Is that something that you've uh, tried? I've actually never tried it, but I love the idea of it. I've heard that it works beautifully. And I also feel like it takes some of the key scientific facts about baking powder and really applies them in this context that works so deliciously. So basically, it does two things. Again, if you think about what is the perfect chicken skin, you want it to be a little brown in color, right? You want them to have some browning reactions or Maillard reactions. And then you want it to kind of be crunchy, right? A little sort of fluffily crunchy. It has a nice bite to it. As you bite into it, you kind of hear that crunch and that makes you think, ah, perfect chicken skin. What baking powder does, first with the browning, it turns out that these reactions that turn the chicken skin brown, we call them Maillard reactions often, they are the first step in that reaction. It's a, it's a very long, very complicated reaction where many things react with each other, creating hundreds and hundreds of molecules. But the very first step is that an amino acid reacts with something else. And that's kind of the limiting step. And so if you can get that to go happen a little bit faster, then you not only get faster reactions, but also more reactions. And so it turns out that baking powder does this because baking powder 
is a base. It's basic. So the pH is, is a little bit above seven. It's like eight-ish or so. And for those of you who really like chemistry, <laughs> it basically makes the amino group on the amino acid into a better sort of attacker. So it, it speeds up that reaction. And then that just really catalyzes those browning reactions. Okay, so that's the first part. That's the browning reactions. And then the, the second part is kind of the crunchiness and the sort of this light kind of bubbly texture that the perfect chicken skin has. And for that, baking powder, if you've ever just, you know this from baking cookies, right? Or even just putting it in some water is that the sodium bicarbonate reacts with an acid and baking powder actually has an acid in it. So it usually has tartaric acid or other acids. And in doing that, it creates a gas. And so when you're baking cookies, it, this gas kind of goes into the cookies and it makes the cookies fluffy and delicious. And, and in the case of chicken skin, it kind of does the same thing. You add a little bit to the surface and there is just enough fluid around to kind of capture some of the gas. And that kind of puffs up the skin. And then when you cook it, it, it kind of stays that way. It kind of turns into a solid foam. So that's the secret behind that. One other thing was she says that the pie crust on her pie tastes better the second day because of starch retrogradation, which as far as I know is what happens when bread goes stale, but apparently it may also make your pie crust taste better. Is that something that you've come across? Yeah, I do think that pies taste better after a day or so. I, do, I, I agree. I think that's true. And um, I love this starch retrogradation. It's such a beautiful, uh, complicated word. <laughs> Should I explain how it works? Or, yeah, or... please do, yeah. Okay, so let's see. So you think about the main ingredient in pie crust. There's a bunch of fat in there, and then there's flour, right? And often when we talk about flour, we talk about, in the case of bread, we often talk about the gluten and the protein, blah, blah, blah. And the gluten is important, but really the kind of bulk of flour is the starch. That's kind of what's giving the bulk of your bread or your cookie or your cake or whatever, your pie crust. And starch is arranged into small little granules, small little blobs, and inside them are perfectly arranged carbohydrates, so long strings of sugars, but they've been perfectly folded up and organized and structured in tight, tight, tight little balls, basically, and perfectly arranged. And so then what happens when you first put the starch in water and then you heat it is that these little granules of these carbohydrates, and they're called, for those of you who are familiar, amylopectin. And they're basically both long strings of sugars. And so what happens when you put it in water and heat the water, as you do when you bake or when you make like a white sauce, is that the little granules, they swell a lot. They become bigger. They soak up water. And they are amazing at swelling. They can swell like 10 times, 15 times, all the way up to 30 times, depending on which plant the starch comes from. So they all behave a little bit differently. And then what eventually happens is that as you increase the temperature, the molecules kind of jiggle around and sort of wiggle around in general, and they kind of break some of the bonds that hold them together. And this means that these long carbohydrates start to kind of leak out of these little tight granules. So now you essentially have these little swollen up balls, and they're kind of surrounded by this kind of sticky stuff that can now form bonds with other things. And so this is why thickening a sauce with flour is so super effective, because this basically 
makes it more viscous. It kind of slows the flow of the sauce. And the same thing happens when you bake bread or make a cake or something like that. So that is what it kind of looks like right as you take your sauce off the stove or right as you take your cake out of the oven, right as you take your pie crust out of the oven. Then what happens if you just wait for some time is that this random energy, this kind of wiggling that released all of the little carbohydrates, these long strings into the sauce, they will kind of lose that wiggly feature and they will start to kind of relax and form new bonds. So they still have the capacity to form bonds with each other and other things. And so this is basically what we refer to as retrogradation. And that whole thing basically make, makes the staling bread, it makes it firmer. It just makes it less kind of fluffy and soft. And it turns out that in the case of pie crust, since there are also other things in there, like a lot of fat, for example, that effect actually ends up being something that tastes good to us, that has kind of a desirable texture. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. I asked around my colleagues in the in New Scientist team if any of them had questions about food science that they wanted to ask an expert. One of them asked, why do acids stop food like avocados from browning? Yeah, so that is, it's actually originally a defense against insects. So it turns out that when you cut something open, like an avocado or an apple, you basically sort of rupture the cells, you cut them open. And by doing that, you do two things. You expose them to oxygen. So suddenly now there's a bunch of oxygen from the air that wasn't there before. And you allow certain enzymes to react with phenolic compounds. And this basically allows these phenolic compounds. They're sort of little ring structures, carbon ring structures, that will then sort of lump together into bigger blobs and they happen to have a brown color. So that's the brown. And in the case of the insects, the idea is that if an insect were to bite into the food, basically these phenolic compounds would interact with enzymes in the insect and, and sort of something similar would happen that was not favorable to the insect. Nowadays, we hear a lot about fermented foods and how good they are for our uh, microbiome and, and that kind of thing. And it's quite popular in restaurants now as well, increasingly. So if you're making fermented foods at home, how do you know that the, the microbes that you're allowing to grow in your food are the good microbes? Because, you know, a lot of the time we try to think about how we kill microbes, but this time 
with fermentation yeast of encouraging them. So how do you know that the, the good ones are growing and stop ones from growing? Mm, that's a great question. I love talking about fermentation. I teach an entire course on fermentation. I would say there are two kinds of answers. One of them is that for so many of these kind of standard fermentations, traditional fermentations, so yogurt, sauerkraut, pickles, all of those, they've really been practiced for millennia by humans. They're relatively robust fermentations and also they tend to have markers that tells you if, if it went right or wrong. So if a yogurt goes bad, you, you can kind of taste it and, and feel it, but also mostly, mostly it goes okay. Same thing with sauerkraut. Um, they're kind of robust fermentations. They're robust because when we because our recipes for them, as simple as many of these fermentation recipes are, right? Many of them are really just sauerkraut is you you take cabbage, you chop it, you add salt, you squish it into a jar very, very tightly, and then you wait. It's sort of the simplest idea of a recipe you could think of anyway. But as simple as they are, what you do is you create very, very specific conditions for the microbes that you want to grow. And so in the case of sauerkraut, the fact that you're adding salt makes the environment just a little bit more favorable for the lactic acid bacteria. And that kind of allows them to grow a little bit more than other potentially harmful bacteria. And by doing that, they produce an acid, lactic acid, which lowers the pH. And that also happens to be something that really favors those bacteria, but not so much other bacteria. And that allows them to continue to grow more and kind of take over and take over. And similarly, when we kind of push like a sauerkraut very, very tightly into a jar, we're taking away the oxygen, which is also what those bacteria, that's what they prefer. Those kinds of recipes are pretty robust as long as you follow the procedure. And often you can tell if something went wrong. Then I think it gets a little bit more tricky when you're fermenting things that are less traditional. When you're using novel substrates, where you're using new things for the microbes to grow off. And there are some examples of where toxins can actually be produced. Meat fermentations, for example, are a little bit more tricky in general. By now, fermentation has undergone such a boom that a lot of, there's a lot of tips available online. And I really encourage people to play with it because it's fun. And you're playing with something that's alive, right? These microbes and they're living and cooking the food for you. It's amazing. Yeah. I've tried making uh, kimchi and preserved lemons and also a hot sauce with chilies that you um, ferment to make the hot sauce. And they've all uh, worked really well. And yeah, definitely something I'd like to try some more of. So with uh, Christmas coming up, I was looking for ideas for kind of a special festive food. And I heard about this one called lutefisk from uh, <laughs> from Sweden. And um, it's made, I think, by preserving a fish with alkali. Um, can you tell me anything about that? So this is a common traditional recipe for the holidays in uh, many Nordic countries. And the whole idea is that in order to preserve the fish, you would dry it for, for a long time so that the fish gets very, very dry. And then in order to ma basically make it edible again, 
you go through a process starting two, three weeks before the holidays, where you first immerse this dried fish in lye. Eventually, every now and then, you change out and kind of wash out the lye and, and, and exchange it for water. And so what this does is it's almost, it's kind of the alkaline cousin of ceviche. So when you make ceviche, you kind of cook fish, raw fish, with an acid, with lemon juice. And what that does is it denatures the protein in the fish and changes the color a little bit and changes the texture. And you kind of cook cook the fish, essentially, but you're doing it with acid. And so this is, it works similarly because, again, you're cooking it by changing the pH. So instead of having an acidic solution, you use lye, which is a basic solution. But a basic solution also kind of messes up and denatures proteins. And so it basically denatures proteins and kind of cooks them and changes the texture, changes the color. So in the case of lutefisk, the the protein almost turned gelatinous. It's like chewing into fish jelly almost. It's an acquired taste. But, you know, the potatoes and the sauce that go with it are very, very good. <laughs> <laughs> so you wouldn't recommend the, the lutefisk itself? Well, I would recommend trying it for sure. I have tried making gravlax, which is a salt-cured salmon, which is a really nice festive dish and not at all challenging to make or to taste. And I thought that was a really nice uh, a nice thing to make for Christmas. And the idea with that is just the, the salt will sort of diffuses through the fish and does that also have a kind of effect of cooking it and it sort yeah, of firms, yeah, it, firms it up exactly the, the idea is actually fairly similar in a way because what is salt it's charged ions and so anytime you're changing charge which is essentially what what you do when you lower the ph with acid or you increase the ph with lye you're changing the charge of the proteins and so that's how they fall apart and denature and you can do the same thing with salt um, so you're kind of, again, you're, you're in some way denaturing or changing the proteins and that kind of cooks them. That's a great example. And delicious, <laughs> I think. Very delicious. Yes. <laughs> Thanks. It was really nice to talk to you and really fascinating to hear about uh, all those food science things. Thank you so much for having me. It was a pleasure. Thanks so much for listening to this episode of Culture Lab from New Scientist Podcasts. That was Sam Wong in conversation with food scientist Pia Sorensen. If you like this interview, make sure you subscribe to our feed for more like it, plus our weekly news podcast and our special series on the science of cannabis. Those are all dropping right here every Friday and Tuesday. Find more journalism from New Scientist on our website at newscientist.com. I'm Christy Taylor. Bye for now. This podcast is produced by OG Podcasts. Find out more at ogpodcasts.co.uk. 